Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here. Just wanted to give you a brief intro into what you're about to hear. So on October 30th, I moderated a panel at Azusa Pacific University about the Damien Chazelle film Whiplash. Uh, the uh, panelists were Dr. Thomas Parham, the chair of the Department of Cinematic Arts, John Burdett, uh, director of instrumental studies and director of bands, and Ryan Isay, adjunct professor, uh, Department of Cinematic Arts. So, you know, very prestigious, very exciting. And um, so, if you if you are not you know if you're not tired of hearing about me talk about whiplash, then I would suggest listening to this. But what they have to say is very interesting. Uh, it was a great deal of fun. Uh, I feel like I should uh, say thank you to my friend uh, Barnabas Protnicki, who helped put that together. And uh, yeah, so what I will say is uh, there is a, a brief Q&A and uh, there are a couple of questions, but the audience was not mic'd. And so my voice will come in and I will explain what they asked and then it'll go back to the, uh, to our answers. So, uh, just if that's jarring to you, I apologize. So that's the situation. Uh, here's the, uh, here's the panel. Enjoy. <laughs> so, um, yeah. All right. Thanks everybody for coming. Oh, we had two more and we lost them right before the big scene. Um, <laughs> That's all right. Nothing that important happens at that moment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, quick introduction to me. Uh, my name is Tyler Smith. I host a podcast called More Than One Lesson. Uh, it's been running for about six and a half years. And what it is is film discussion from a Christian standpoint. Now, uh, let me explain what that doesn't mean. It does not mean that we count the swear words. Uh, we would have lost count uh, watching Whiplash. Um, more than anything, it's it discusses film certainly from a artistic point of view, but also uh, we kind of operate on this theory that uh, if art is a search for truth, uh, what you know, maybe in depth, maybe not. Um, it's only a matter of time before you encounter God. Now you may not uh, get to the point of. Uh, Christ or anything like that, but you will, if it's a sincere truth, you will veer nearer to that uh, the deeper you go. And so if you find a film that uh, in which the filmmaker is really delving into uh, a deeper truth and trying to find that, uh, then that means we as Christians can probably get any number of uh, things from that. More, uh, We can get a number of lessons, more than one, one could say. Uh, so uh, we did the, the basic introductions here. So let's talk about uh, Whiplash, some basic information. As we saw, is written directed by Damien Chazelle. It came out last year. Uh, it stars Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons, Paul Reiser, uh, and a number of others, but those are the, the big three. Uh, Melissa Benoist, I guess, who I believe is Supergirl. Supergirl. Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, the film was nominated for Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay. It won three Oscars, uh, including sound mixing, editing, and supporting actor for J.K. Simmons. So, initial reactions uh, to the film, uh, along with expectation, I will say that uh, for myself, <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the show Oz that was on HBO in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I watched that show and I saw J.K. Simmons as white supremacist Vern Schillinger. He's terrifying and yet, 
remarkably charming. And uh, I remember being like, man, who is that guy? He's amazing. And then he was cast as J. Jonah Jameson, and he became, as an actor, uh, a great deal more cuddly and acceptable. And I don't think uh, we had seen any of the intensity that uh, we saw from uh, Oz. And so when I saw the trailer for Whiplash, I remember thinking, there's Vern, there he is. I'm terrified, I'm exhausted, and uh, but I can't take my eyes off the screen. So walking into the film, that's what I thought it was going to be. Um, the idea, I thought it was just gonna be a, a nice little showcase for J.K. Simmons, and that was it. Um, but what I didn't expect was this strangely intense, kinetic, it sounds weird to refer to the film as a meditation, because it moves so quick and it's so uh, engaging and uh, jarring at times, but this odd little meditation on the cost of excellence. Um, I don't think it is a perfect film, but I think it's a great film, uh, and great films don't necessarily have to be perfect. Um, and I think the reason that people, and we were talking about this before we, uh, we started uh, talking here, um, one of the things that fascinates me about the film, and I think the reason that people remember it, there are a number of people that said this was the best film of last year, and I think the reason it sticks with people is because it's kind of ambiguous. It does not come down on the side of there is, there is a line in which you can go too far, or there's no such thing as too far. If it, had, if it had come down on either one of those sides, you leave the film either agreeing or disagreeing, and that's the end of it. But it's somewhere in the middle, the film, I think, does not take a side. It, prevent, it pre uh, you know, presents good arguments for both sides and then lets you decide. But I would venture to say it lets you decide for yourself, not even in the larger sense, but just in your own lives. And so it's a film that really, uh, really did a number on me as somebody who is striving to be a film critic and striving to, where I can, push others to do better uh, in their filmmaking and, and in expecting thing, in expecting quality from their movies. So that was my initial reaction. Uh, we got a lot of questions to get through, so we'll we'll just I'll throw it out to you guys real quick. Uh, what were your initial either expectations or your initial reactions to the film when you first saw it? We'll we'll start with uh, Tom. Yeah, I I like quite a bit of the film. I have problems with Act Three. For me, that's where it kind of falls off the train. But the performances are great, and I love. I mean, J.K. Simmons got all the praise, but it's a, it's grounded by Miles Teller's performance. I mean, this kid is obsessed with being the best to the point that he breaks up with. She's not even really his girlfriend yet, but it's like I, I gotta stop this before we get too far. Mm -hmm. And he has it all planned out, which is what ticks her off. And she's like, "Yeah, bye bye." Well, could have dated Supergirl. Yeah, you could have dated Supergirl, well, man. Did. You end up marrying Sue Storm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, my reaction. I agree. I do agree that it's not a perfect film. Um, it does fall apart for me at the car crash, that scene. It drives me a little bit nuts, but it redeems itself. Every time I see it, this is my fourth time watching it all the way through, and every single time, that last 10 minutes, it always redeems it. And it's not just 
the music it's not just that they've built up the tension to that moment it's the editing it's the performances almost no dialogue but you get the transition that jk simmons has from from anger and resentment towards awe even at the end and then it's just like this moment of joy between them to where we don't even need words and they are able to convey this moment where it's just i don't know about you guys when we get to that final moment it's like Ah, I can finally breathe after 10 minutes of tension. Um, and, and to me, that's great filmmaking, that I can forget the flaws and, and be drawn in once again after it does. It loses me a little bit. So that's my reaction every time. Now, John, you're a music guy, so I have to assume this is just your life all the time, right? Um, what was your reaction? I'm not sure at that, that level of intensity, but um, I wanted to not like it. And I kind of went in not wanting to like it. And there are elements in which I resonated and took me back to places in my own life. Hmm. And um, uh, the car crash was a little too cliche for me, but um, it was captivating and captivating. Yeah, uh, the car crash is the thing that, that usually takes me out of it. That and that family dinner scene, which is written it's played fine, but I think it's written like somebody who's probably been in that position of having dinner with a family that does not quite understand what you do. Yeah. A lot of us have been in that situation, but I think he writes it to, I think he writes the essence of it more than the actual specificity to the point that the family comes off a little buffoonish. I think, I don't mm -hmm. think he's super fair to them. Yeah. The fact that Mike, please. Oh, the fact that he doesn't get the last word that his father his biggest supporter right. kind of puts him in his place yeah. again when I'm almost out of the moment and I'm like ah this scene's a little bit much that's what saves it for me yeah. that's when you get that little bit of truth and yeah. he doesn't get the last word he's not the smartest kid in the room like he always thinks he is so. yeah. and but, that speaks a lot to uh, the power of Paul Reiser's performance who doesn't I think get enough credit in this film I yeah. think he's marvelous he's terrific in this um so I, we're going to move on now, Tom. One thing that I find interesting is that, like, you feel like the film has third act problems, and yet you decided that this was a film that needed to be screened. That this is the film worth discussing. What was it about the film that made you decide we need to watch this here? When we initially started talking about doing this, we were kind of kind of juxtaposed this with the '70s film, The Paper Chase. You know, as a career educator. I'm always fascinated when you see these mentor-protege relationships, and I spent 11 years in the Navy, so I've seen abusive mentor-protege relationships, <laughs> but it's just like, oh my gosh, you're doing everything wrong as respective mentor, and I've seen teachers here who have been abusive to students expecting results. Our job is not to antagonize them, it's to try to raise them up. And again, following Christ's example, Christ meets people where they are and brings them up, hammering them down, trying to squeeze them, putting them under pressure so the coal becomes diamond. That's one approach to it. I don't think it's valid, for, especially for Christian educators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's problematic. And yet you're still captivated because Simmons is an electrifying performer, yeah. whether he's playing the charming white racist or J. Jonah Jameson yeah. or even the uh, farmer's guy. Bum, ba -dum, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> it was so weird to watch the Oscars and watch him get the Oscar, and those that commercial campaign is still happening. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, it's fascinating. And Neil Patrick Harris made a joke about it. Yeah. He won an Oscar. Bum, ba -dum, bum, 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 bum. Um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a film that definitely. Well, I mean, we'll get more into that uh, in a moment. The idea of 
of mentors and and film mentors that we have seen in the past and the the ones that uh, mm -hmm. the character of Fletcher remind us of um, so John here's what I, one thing that I find interesting mm -hmm. so the film is about demanding quality and excellence from ourselves and others mm -hmm. um, the con that idea can apply to any art it can apply to probably any business or industry at the same time right but do you think that there's something specific about music uh, that lends itself to the kind of intensity and the kind of struggle that we see in the film. Definitely. I, th I really think this film is about the nature of expertise mm -hmm. and that how do we arrive at expertise? And we need someone who is further ahead of us to take us to that place. And so it's, it is the, the teacher-student relationship, but it is, it's inherent in music. And rarely does someone in music in fact i actually would say never do they ever get to a place of expertise without having learned from someone whether that person was in the same room with them or they're on a recording and they've listened to that recording until it's worn out but uh it is innate in music um for that reason i think because it's so much about a relationship with that person and them developing you yeah a, a person could instinctively be a good actor i mean obviously you need to develop that but they mm -hmm. could just have that in them mm -hmm. but there's something about music where you need someone to at the very least i guess we could kindly say push you yeah uh as they do in the film yeah uh ryan one thing that i wanted to talk about with you is because along with being a professor you are also an actor occasionally um, occasionally but uh you know that's more than me um I, I acted in high school. The director regularly said, get off my stage. And that was enough for me. So I quit. I, unlike Charlie Parker. So, um, so the tension in the film is ratcheted up, not merely by the editing of the film and that sound, that sound mix that actually uh, won the Oscar deser uh, deservedly, I think. Um, but also its performance. It's obviously it's a, something of an actor's film. So what choices do you see Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons? We can throw Paul Reisner and any of the other actors in there as well, but it's primarily about that relationship, uh, Andrew and Fletcher. What choices do you see the actors making that help set the tone of tension and discomfort and intensity? I mean, it, it, this is such a great acting film because whenever they're not speaking is when you get some of their best performances. Um, when you see Melissa's face, when she realizes he's going to break up with her after, what's what, their second or third date? Um, that transition from joy, I'm seeing this guy I really like, to, oh, I get what's happening right now. Or, or Paul Reiser's face when he's seeing his son realizing this is what he's capable of. He, yeah. he is a a genius and, and and he's seen that he's realizing um ah, there's so many of those moments i think it's in between the lines those colorful uh wonderfully creative expletives that we have throughout the screenplay <laughs> yeah they're great but but like i said it's what you see in his performance um where he goes from anger like i'm just gonna get revenge to actually getting on board with that final performance right. or riser or you know to small slightly lesser degree Miles Teller just because I have a little bit more resentment towards him for all of the failed films he's done recently but <laughs> he is very good um, and there is a lot of that you see the anxiety you see it all in his face um, yeah there's so many great moments and, and I think people don't realize how important it is I think amateur actors especially don't realize how important it is to act 
acting is is not just saying the lines it's reacting as well mm -hmm. that's such an important part and the reactions in here they convey such strong emotions that where we can all understand what they're feeling just with the slightest change in their expression and one thing that i find interesting about miles teller's performance um is that not unlike the film itself and the characters themselves when you've got jk simmons screaming in your face you as an actor could get lost mm -hmm. and it becomes the fletcher show all the way through which many could say it is or you have to push back so that you can even be seen and you're the lead of the film like you need to rise to his level and so you have the two of them going back and forth back and forth reacting to each other and building each other up as well as themselves i feel like both actors are being and i don't mean this in a negative way they're both being selfish because they've got something they need to do in the nature of the characters but also surprisingly generous and just giving the other actor as much as they can so that they can get something back yeah absolutely and i think that some credit also goes in some credit the screenplay it like you said is is ambig ambiguous to a certain degree there's things that we don't know about either character we don't exactly know the family dynamic is mm -hmm. that his stepmother's new husband is that an uncle are those his brothers are those his half brothers we don't know jk simmons whole backstory either right the phone call that he gets that that, that breaks him down we don't find out you know all of the information eventually we find out that that his former student killed himself didn't get in a car crash but right. we're given small pieces of information um and yeah it is the fact that we don't know a lot about his character but he's still so powerful is a testament to his performance um yeah and i do think so the next couple of questions are really going to focus on fletcher because he is a fascinating character um when I look at, and this speaks to what we were talking about a moment ago, when I look at Fletcher, I am reminded of a number of similar characters in the past. We mentioned John Hausman uh, as the law professor in The Paper Chase, Best Supporting Actor in 1973. Lou Gossett Jr. as a drill sergeant and an officer and a gentleman, Best Supporting Actor in 1982. There's a lot of we Oscars to be found. love abusive mentors and, uh, yeah, when it um, comes to Oscar time. <laughs> uh, but oddly enough, the character, like not merely the type of character, but what he's willing to do just bear with me that the character that Fletcher reminds me of a great deal is Samuel Jackson's character in Unbreakable who is willing to do go to unthinkable lengths to get to find like this in his case you know he's looking for like a real life superhero in the case of Fletcher he's looking for a Charlie Parker now in Unbreakable, this character is, by his own admission, a villain. So my a question- A super villain. A super villain, in fact. Mr. Glass, that's what the kids called him. Uh, so my question for the panel, and not everybody has to answer, but if you feel like you have an answer, feel free to, to weigh in. Uh, is Fletcher a villain? He's an, antagon is, he's an antagonist. All right. And we, we were talking at dinner about uh, The Fugitive. One of the things I love about that screenplay is, your protagonist and antagonist are both good guys. Mm -hmm. Your villainous, this uh, supporting character played by indistinct Euro trash villain. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're not so different, you and I. That's Villains t tend to say that kind of thing. I actually tend to, I prefer to look at his character as more of a, a theoretical construct or an idea. <laughs> nice. Um, but I don't see him as a villain. Okay. I don't. I'll take I'll take the opposite. Um, I'll say he's a villain. Okay. I think uh, we're wrestling with the idea in our in our day. Can you be a bad person and a good leader? And I think he's a bad person, so that makes him a villain. Hmm. 
Yeah, and especially, Tom, given what you were saying a moment uh, earlier at the beginning, that he has uh, he has a philosophy that he is following. He has a method that he's following, and by you, you know, uh, according to you, and I would venture to say I agree, um, it's unnecessary. It is possible to find and push somebody to the level of quality that he's looking for without being so abusive. When there's blood on the drum kit, you've gone too far. <laughs> so here's, okay. Can I here's, just wait real, real quick? Yes, I, I, I would say, though, that he is uh, following the golden rule. I don't think he would want anyone to do any different to him. So he's treating others the way he wished someone would have treated him. Or the way somebody did treat him. Mm, yeah. Look who's jumping ahead. But he does notes. say, but he does say, I never had that person for me in my life. Right. But I did try, and no one can take that away from me. Yeah. So, so that's, that's speaking of his trying, one thing. So I recorded a, 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 a proper podcast about Whiplash about a month and a half ago, and my co-host like blew my mind when he can, when he talked about this. You mentioned it a moment ago when um, Fletcher is getting feeling very broken up about this student of his that passed away. I want to make sure I've got this straight when I read it because it's fascinating to me. So, Fletcher is manipulative. Mm -hmm. We think he's abusive. He is, certainly. But he is also manipulative. Mm -hmm. He is manipulating his students mm -hmm. at all times. Mm -hmm. the, it, is, it is argued that maybe the two moments we ever see of his that are 100% real are when he's in his office after getting the initial phone call and there at the end when he is feeling absolutely invigorated by what Andrew is doing on the drums. Which means that when he is going out and playing the, the, the disc for uh, the, the song for his students and telling them about this student of his, the tears might be real, but there is, it is, to me, it, the more I watch the film, the more clear it becomes to me that like, this is him manipulating his students. They've seen him yell, mm -hmm. but they haven't seen him cry. Crying over a student? He is human. He and must how, love what, me. And can yeah. you imagine how good that guy must have been to make this monster cry? Can I be that good? Mm -hmm. It's a different type of manipulation. Yeah. And it's just mind-boggling. And if you're looking at it that way, regardless of what his intention might be, somebody who is that manipulative to me seems rather villainous mm -hmm. but uh he's certainly a good actor oh sure um, and and i think it's significant like you're saying that right after that moment that's the moment he's just taken the the first chair away from our protagonist and then after that he says okay and then he does that whole moment and you see the smile that that he realizes okay i know where this is going miles taylor character he's like i know where this is going yeah and it's like he's Laying it out so only he knows that yeah. he's the only one knows that this is kind of a manipulation. Um, In fairness, you can use a what, what's the word? A come to Jesus talk mm -hmm. appropriately to motivate students. Sure. When I taught at another uh, rival Christian film program. I, I advised the broadcast. I'm not going to say the name. Which no, will remain we're, nameless. We're, we're broadcasting this. I did a podcast there this. myself. It's fine. But um, I was, I advised the, the broadcast journalism, the student news show. And one particular Friday, they were not getting it together. And I was just getting aggravated. So I purposefully read them the riot act. And then when I went in my office, they pulled it together. I went back in. We thought you left. Oh, no. That was just, <laughs> you know, you can use that to affect. The thing is, you can't do it all the time. Two and that's things. the problem. If you're always yelling, 
how are we going to tell if you're really upset? Right. What's, it, what's interesting about the the nature of the music ensemble rehearsal is that you have lots of short spurts, right? Mm-hmm. We start, we stop, start, stop, start, stop, and then we go about an hour or two hours and that rehearsal's over. You so you have... Well, sometimes. <laughs> uh, but you have these little moments what we might call rehearsal episodes where you get a chance to say something or be something or manipulate towards a certain thing. And so I, there's uh, somehow it's built into the structure of it mm-hmm. that that's acceptable. Well, to an extent it's acceptable and that musicians are expecting some negative Reinforcement? Yeah, I'm not sure reinforcement, but a negative uh, analysis of what just happened. Mm-hmm. And so, Constructive criticism. Right. Or destructive um, criticism. <laughs> but it's, it is criticism. It's yeah. criticism consistently. And so there's something about that there too. So, you know, that's a little different than the news, your, your, your students where you engage with them for a few minutes at a time. So I don't know if the dosage has an effect on that as well. Yeah, but. that was a question that I was going to ask the three of you because you are in a position to teach, you know, younger people and try to get something out of them. How comfortable are you? And you acknowledge that there is a certain degree of manipulation involved. How comfortable are you with just straight up manipulating them? And how far is too far? That might be too broad of a question, but I'm curious. I mean, the key thing is when you give constructive criticism to make sure it's about the work, mm-hmm. not the student. Right. Right. Because the work can get better. Yep. And by doing by the work improving, by the student putting more effort into it, they become better. But when it feels like a personal attack, yeah, they're gonna stop listening. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard. sometimes you ha- I've had situations in class where students just weren't getting it, and usually another student, thankfully, can step in mm-hmm. and say, "Dude, it's not working." Yeah, because there reaches a point where they stop. It's just you're like Charlie Brown's. You know, teacher. Wah, 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 wah. The key is to get them to turn on each other. That's what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the key is to get them Peer to pressure. empower each yeah. other by okay. constructive constructive right. criticism. I mean, um, one, one of our audience members was in my episodic drama writing class last semester, and that's part of their grade is giving each other constructive criticism. Mm-hmm. And some of them are really good at it, which makes them useful in a writer's room in Hollywood, and some of them don't really engage, which doesn't make them quite useful. I think that it's important, at least I'm trying to give too many of my tricks away to students or former students in here, um, but I think it's important to teach being critical of everything we consume just to begin with, and if we're critical of the music or the movies or the literature that we consume, uh, these are skills that we develop. This is like a muscle, like faith, we build this muscle up, and I think it just naturally happens that we start to look at our own uh, creations the same way and we start becoming more critical um, so I do want to uh, move from because we're running short on time I do want to move from Fletcher to Andrew for a moment um, so we get as you mentioned we get uh, Andrew breaking up with his girlfriend being you know spouting off to family members um, <laughs> and so he doesn't actually seem remarkably sympathetic. He might be at the beginning, but towards the, but he becomes less and less so as we go on. Um, but he's doing this in the na- you know he's cutting he's cutting loose any distraction towards being as as great as he can be, which is something I'm sure we can all relate to. So the question is, do we f- 
do we or should we find that amount of commitment inspiring? How do you feel like we should approach his behavior? That's a good question. He's not emotionally healthy. I mean, <laughs> he gets in a car wreck and instead of staying there because he probably has a concussion and the Lord knows what's going on inside his body, no. he's obsessed with getting to this performance where he can't perform adequately. So, I mean, he's self-destructive. The question I, I kind of want, everybody wants to be good, but to be the best at the cost of everything else, I don't think that's healthy. And I think that we see examples in everyday life, whether it's sports, whether it's entertainment, you know, what, scripture says, what does it gain a man? Yeah. What, what does it profit a man to gain the world, but lose his soul? Too. Yeah. I'm not going to follow a Bible quote. I mean, really? <laughs> I, yeah. I put, I put Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is right. I mean, yeah, I do agree to a certain degree. He's definitely not mature uh, in the way that he handles things, but the drive in him i life is about choices and it's easy in the middle of it to say oh that's right that's wrong but we get to a certain point in our life and we look at the paths that we've taken and the forks and the decisions we could have made and i think that's where uh the his teacher's role comes in he's kind of at that point where he realizes i could have driven myself harder and perhaps gotten further and he wants to see that in someone that has that same ability that drive uh, again works better if you look at it as a theoretical construct when you're actually looking at the reality yes it's not good to a throw things at your students hit them in the face leave a car accident these are not good things mm -hmm. but I think the urge to follow your passion is never a bad thing and now what that means what in your heart of hearts uh, and that final close-up shot of his chest his ear and his chest because he's feeling the music what in your heart your passion is what you feel your purpose is for some people it's going to be to get married and have children and to be happy and to do that and other people they want to leave something behind and they're willing to sacrifice uh, mm. how far is too far that's a tough question and that's why I love this movie I don't have the answer you yeah we were talking uh, before the movie uh, and that this question is to you like one of the most interesting things about the film and we actually wound up talking about uh, uh, a recent film that I highly recommend it's not gonna be in theaters long uh, Steve Jobs uh, seek it out and, and watch yeah. it if you if you get the chance but we were talking about that yeah. uh, beforehand I, I kind of want to piggyback on what Ryan said. Um, one of my favorite thinkers, Dallas Willard, uh, used to talk about how our soul is our wanter. The thing that we want, uh, it comes from that place. And so what I find so captivating about this film is the the wants. And even Fletcher at the end, right? I, I effing tried. Mm-hmm he wanted and in this day and age i especially want my students to want and and i think we've lost a sense of want and a sense of will so yeah i think um i think bloody hands may be a little bit overboard but i don't know from my taste i'm not sure as a teacher you have demonstrated want mm -hmm. And those those uh, bloody hands are probably going to heal at some point. And so let's take a break. Let's get our emotional <laughs> forbearance about us. But then that want is going to take you very, very far. 
now we just got to teach the emotionally healthy aspects of this but i'm not sure fletcher's fletcher was going to do that yeah and is it is it uh is it a teacher's responsibility to instill that or right. is it just to shape the passion well i i think in the best of all scenarios both okay I don't, I don't know if it can be done, though, with the same person. I think this, the teacher has to pick one, at least in my own life. I think that's true. And you might be able to switch roles later on, but you can't play both because right. it does sort of start to become manipulative. Uh, I don't know. I need to explore that more. But And I do think it's interesting that the one um, area under the rug that we don't want to look at this film is he talks about if you're that person if you're good enough to be the next great then nothing's going to deter you you'll keep going and we see that in him but what we don't ever investigate are what about the students that aren't good enough what about the damage he does to the ones who just want to enjoy the art he's maybe destroying that passion because they weren't good enough that's a tough and there's the student that in many ways was good enough, but couldn't cool. take it. Yeah. But, but I would say a one thing as Christian educators, because we mm. care about the whole body, mm. right. our heart, mind, soul, strength, that you can try to do multiple things. Yeah. Right. You just have to know when to be able to switch roles. Yeah. When to take off your, you know, your drill sergeant hat and put on your, you know, your... Uh, your mentor hat, your kindly mentor, your Yoda hat. Yeah. To kind of circle back to what you were asking in regard to Steve Jobs, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. One of the faculty members here has written a book recently um, that really circles circles on this concept of bad person and good leader. Is it is that a reality? And I think for those of us who follow Jesus, that is not something we can support. I don't think so. And that as the church, where else in the world are good people going to be cultivated but the church? Where else is that going to happen? Nowhere. And so that is our responsibility as Christian mentors, Christian leaders, to develop good people and good leaders. And if we don't do that, who, who will? Who will? So uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the uh, last question moving towards uh, some uh, spiritual application, and this might wind up being the most difficult question of all. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So Whatever we do, whether it be play the drums or operate on sick children or pump gas, uh, we should do as working for the Lord. So that's a pretty big idea. But when I read that, it also, I feel like it puts a whole lot of pressure on me. Uh, it can be at times, because I am who I am, like a little bit terrifying. And to me, if I'm working for God, whatever it is I'm doing, I look at whiplash and I think these guys get it. You know, and so couched in this, the idea that as Christians, there's another there's another layer of possible pressure on us. How do you guys react to that in your own work and also in teaching other people? I mean, I think one of the problems with this is they're doing it for ego, not for a mm. higher purpose. Right. And um, I've learned in my you know, 52 years of life that when you use your gifts for God, and your motivations are right, and it's not about ego, not only can you excel, but you can find a real joy because the pressure's off. Mm -hmm. Whether it's 
performing or writing or acting or singing if you realize that ultimately you have an audience of one instead of the multitudes there can be you know there can be a great resonance and peace that you don't have to satisfy you know anybody else you don't even have mm -hmm. to satisfy yourself because if you're worried about all the technical things you might have done wrong but realize a you did your best b you're presenting it as an offering to God, mm -hmm. uh, much like Abel did in back in Genesis, then you can truly realize my, my heart is in the right place. I did the best I can. I'm not going to second guess myself. I'm not going to obsess. I'm just going to realize I gave it my all and that's all I can do. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because you know, I was I was going to make a joke like Abel. Yeah, we all know what happened to him. <laughs> but what happened to him is he was uh, killed by somebody who's way who was way more ego and performance based. And was jealous. Yeah. Um, now Ryan, when he was saying that they were doing it in in service of ego and nothing else, I saw a, a flicker across your face. You seem to disagree. But I, I'm not sure. Not entirely. Okay. I think it's more complicated. At least for him, he doesn't care about worldly uh, celebrity wealth. He cares about being remembered in his art form which is not mm -hmm. even like pop culture he's not looking to be famous he's not looking to be rich he doesn't care if he dies alone and broke he doesn't care what he cares about which is, is common for musicians <laughs> and a lot of artists um he what he cares about is sacrificing his life for the art form and he feels that is his passion and I, yeah. i'll tell you for myself and i've shared this with my students i feel that pressure i feel that anxiety on a daily basis i have a really difficult time relaxing i have a hard time socializing because i do feel this passion in me like that there is a certain i don't know what i god puts me in places i don't expect i didn't expect to be teaching but i throw myself wholeheartedly into it just like I would acting, just like I would film reviewing, just like any other creative creative thing that I do because I feel this passion in me that I was created for this purpose. Mm -hmm. And now maybe that will change, maybe I haven't met the right person, maybe I'll meet someone and suddenly my purpose will be to have a family. But for the time being, yeah, I, I, I look at this film and I do, I admire that kind of drive. Do I admire all of their behavior, the quality of the way they treat each other? No. Um, there's a lot that I don't, but part of me does really relate to that uh, constant struggle of how can I be pushing myself further, not for my own gain, but I was made for a certain reason. If I don't feel like I'm fulfilling that reason, if I don't fulfilling God's purpose, then I feel like I'm wasting my life. And that to me is a true tragedy. Yeah, there's a, a thing that, that I struggle with. Um, as a, an aspiring film critic, and by the way, like, yes, yes, I'm sure a musician's life is very difficult. Online film criticism. Uh, God called me to get into criticism right when it was dying. So, uh, but there are times when I feel like, you know, obviously you want to be thought of well, and, you know, you want people to know who you are and respect you and all that sort of thing. But then there's also the art form itself. Yeah. And, you know, whether it be like, you love music and you are committed to making music better. Like Fletcher definitely 
had a, an ego thing. He wanted to make his mark. But I also think he had such a love of jazz that he wants it to be better right now. Yeah. At a time when people, based on that Starbucks comment, when people are settling for much less, they're settling for mediocrity. Yeah. And I myself, as a film critic, and I'm sure any number of, of critics would say the same thing, they they love when a film is the is operating at the very highest level and can touch people in a way that they didn't even know was possible. Mm. Um, and so I, I, for me, it's just like film can be such a wonderful transformative thing. And as, and as a critic, as lofty as it may sound, uh, I want to do my part in pushing film to be the best it can be. Mm. But the thing I need to remind myself of is that in the end, film, as wonderful as it is, and as big as it is, is not as big as God. And even in my own life, I am, I am married, and film, as much as I love it, it can't, for me, it can't be as big as my wife either, you know, or, mm. or even friends and relationships. Now, you know, sometimes you have to make little sacrifices here and there, but to sacrifice the entire relationship, and even a relationship with God, is not an option. Hmm. Uh, just to respond to what Ryan said, the, the, the movie quote that comes to mind is from Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's based on a real saying of Eric Liddell, but uh, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the ultimate. When you can realize that you're using your gifts to serve God, and you can feel his pleasure, that is as close to perfection as we need. Yeah. I also, uh, while we're talking, I've been thinking about seek first the kingdom, all the rest will be added to you. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. There is this, uh, in the scriptures that you brought up, kind of lead us to believe that we are prone towards not doing those things. And so we, and so it's Paul saying, go do that. And then, uh, so there's this this push God's saying, you gotta go for it. You gotta want it. You gotta seek it. You gotta, you gotta, push through and um i think if there's anything that we should take away it's that that is god's directive to us mm. to seek and if we seek we'll find and that's very different from i'll just hang out and hope he shows up right <laughs> and i'm gonna hang out and hope i learn to be musician film critic businessman and that's just sort of gonna come to me but we are need, we need to be driven. We need to be pushing towards those things in healthy ways, governed, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit, shouldn't it be? Yeah, guide each other. You know, yeah. to point out like when somebody could be doing better, but also when it's just like I, you might be losing sight of more important things. <laughs> right. I think it's important for your generation. I'm turning it on you more Watch than it. anything else because you're called the me generation, the yeah. entitled generation. Like things are just going to be handed to you. Um, I say rail against that fight back because it won't i'm here to tell you they won't just land in your lap that's not the way life works and uh i think yeah we need to get out of that uh, mindset not just you all of us i hope you guys feel properly accused um (laughs) hooray millennials and uh along those lines we are going to throw it to you guys uh and do uh just sort of a short uh q a um because you know this is a film that uh you know, you can. Like, we talked for like forty-five minutes. I did an episode that was over two hours, 
and it's not enough to talk about with Whiplash because it brings up there's the film itself, but it brings up such important questions yep. with and giving very few answers. So, uh, does anybody have uh, any questions for us? The vast multitudes. Yes, question here. So the question that the guy asks has to do with the uh, car crash in Whiplash. Uh, both Ryan and I made mention of it earlier, but didn't uh, talk about it. So he was wondering uh, what our problems with the incorporation of the car crash uh, were. Uh, for me, I think that's when um, the character of Andrew becomes more of an idea. Uh, it become, the, the theme of the film is way more just on its sleeve. Uh, he could have arrived at the same place emotionally if he simply, if the bus had gotten a flat tire, if he had left his sticks behind, or just showed up late through no fault of his own, and Fletcher said, you are not going on that stage, or you're going to turn his pages, and he gets so frustrated that he finally attacks Fletcher. He can get there emotionally, but I think there's something more, obviously more visually dramatic, to have that car crash, and then to have him go up and be covered in blood. We've already seen the image of like blood on the symbols and stuff like that, but, but for him to be literally covered in blood and for Fletcher to be completely unsympathetic to that, <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's when the characters go from being believable, uh, three-dimensional, and that's when the film wears its themes, it leads with its themes rather than with uh, character. So that for me is the, is the issue. For me, it's not even just the characters. Um, <sighs> The more you watch movies, the more you get used to seeing things, and 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 they just it becomes contrived, and you realize, yeah, I've seen this as a cliche, and I think we've all seen the car crash through that window mm -hmm. from the passenger point of view many times. For me, it's the fact that it's a semi truck, a little <laughs> bit too much. I mean, that's just that ticket a little bit far. Um, does that uh, answer the question uh, to at least to a certain extent? So the audience member responds with a question about whether the car crash was necessary to convey to a more mainstream audience uh, the, where the characters are and uh, as opposed to film nerds and film snobs and critics and professors and stuff like that who are able to discern the more subtle things. And so, uh, so I, I address that here. I think you bring up a great point, and it's one that actually came up during my actual episode about it, because I approach this film instinctively, because I'm so insulated and I hang out with fellow movie nerds, I approach it as an independent film, and then my co-host said, well, what makes it so inherently independent? The fact that there's not robots fighting? Like, if you look at it, if you look at it from a character point of view, and as far as like, I can't think of anybody that wouldn't be engaged by this film. And so maybe it does have way more mainstream sensibilities. Maybe he is making it for a larger audience than I'm aware of. You know, I have become very cynical about the mainstream audience and I shouldn't be. Um, and so I do, uh, I know a number of people who do not have a problem with the car crash for the exact reason that you're talking about, because he is trying, he's not trying to cater only to film professors and film critics. He wants to engage uh, a mainstream audience as well, which is a thing that I, as a film critic, should be cheering. Uh, but instead, I, I kind of, uh, you know, crap on it a little bit. But I think you make a very, a very good point. Um, a transformer should have run into him. That would have been. <laughs> oh my gosh, lines. that'd be amazing. Um, are there any other uh, thoughts or comments or anything? So this next question uh, just has to do with finding balance and trying to 
do two things at once, like juggle a family and a uh, and a career. So the the question was just having to do with that. I'll, I'll take that. Go right ahead. As somebody who's who's been in a, rela- in a relationship for almost a year, one of the things I enjoy about it is she she inspires me in my work and in my creativity. And I think that's what Andrew doesn't realize is the right muse can be very helpful as you pursue your passion in performance or, you know, writing, singing, etc., acting. There's a, a wonderful film called Sweet and Low Down that is very much about that. A guy who, it's a Woody Allen film with Sean Penn. I highly recommend it. Go and see it. I don't know how available it is. But, um, yeah, it's this idea of a guy who's like, no, I'm not going to give anything to anybody. I'm not going to show any emotion. I'm going to put it all into my music. But people find his music to be just kind of insular, not totally understandable, but only when he finally looks back on his life, realizes he's made some mistakes, that he he actually did love some people, and he just lets go emotionally. People say at that point, he his work gets better. And it's because you're, enga- you know, you're engaging with... Uh, with more of life uh, by weird happenstance I'm friends with a lot of stand-up comedians and they they regularly quote I, th- I forget who it was it might have been George Carlin I don't remember but somebody said like my jokes got worse when I stopped going to the bank because they get so removed from real life they get you know a comedian gets his material from real life uh, uh, a writer gets his uh, stories from real life engaging with real life that's relationships that's you know uh Grief, that's love, it's all of these things. And like, pri- like prioritizing God and prioritizing relationships, if, they're, if relationships are a part of your life, like that will inform your work. I mean, I didn't, there are so many movies that I thought were super cheesy until the day I got married or the day I fell in love. And I was like, I get it now. I've felt these ridiculous melodramatic things. Um, you know, and that's the thing that had I not, embraced what I you know embraced my wife and embraced other aspects of life I would not have understood it made me a better critic as a result I'm not sure it's unhealthy for a season mm-hmm. uh, at least as it relates to instrumental music I mean comedians yeah you need outside stimuli for musicians it's like I need a room and myself mm-hmm. and then outside input every once in a while for important things so there, there's an interesting difference there perhaps in music as it relates to other things because it's such a personal that's why musicians are weird they're in a practice room for half their life i mean they, that's we can we can't expect them to be particularly uh poignant and intelligent in other arenas but that's why it's important i think for it to be a season so you put in uh, in, in, in regards to music you put in a time of intensity and then you need to have a moment to or moments or months to recompress and reintegrate into society as we might might uh, over, more overboardly say that but um, I'm not sure it is all that unhealthy for a short term and and I think your you know your friends and loved ones in those relationships they'll understand they understand that this is a big part of your life as well and they'll be willing to sacrifice maybe a little bit of time or whatever right. uh, because they love you and they they are making the effort to understand you as well so I think that's mm-hmm. also a big part of it but I also find I'm a better musician I'm a better artist when I am I don't know, centered on the Lord. Mm-hmm. When, when I'm hearing fresh from the Holy Spirit, when I am living with character and I'm living in a way that I think is pleasing to Him, I find more freedom in myself uh, musically. So 
I don't know. Um, are there any other uh, questions or thoughts or anything? Okay. Um, so, quick plug. So, I've got stuff over here. Uh, Barnabas will be here to answer questions and such. Uh, postcard with a link to uh, the website you can check out. Uh, every episode we've ever done is available. Uh, recently, for Halloween, we recorded five weeks in a row of discussing horror movies, including It Follows, The Babadook. Uh, Rosemary's Baby and a number of others so you can find that at morethanonelesson.com and then there's also a list of movie recommendations uh, that uh, I th that I feel like films that have a great deal of spiritual significance even if it doesn't seem like that immediately so mm -hmm. those are available over here in the meantime uh, thank you guys for being a part of this mm -hmm. I appreciate it and thank you guys for coming have a good night